I uh, would love to introduce Paul Greengrass to the stage, BAFTA-winning director. Um, he did Bloody Sunday. He's done the Bourne films. Please welcome onto the stage, Paul Greengrass. Hi, Paul. Hello. Um, now, when I was five, I wanted to be a water scientist. And oh, yeah. That, that didn't work out. Can you remember what you wanted to be when you were a kid? Well, a footballer, obviously. Obviously. Um, I think probably before that, possibly a train driver. Uh -huh. uh, but um, certainly when I was a teenager, that was really when I started to get interested in films and filmmaking and taking photographs and sort of that whole world. I suppose when I was about 15, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when, round about then, was when I made my first film. And that sort of stayed with me through university. And, and, and then I wanted to get into the industry, which was the television industry. And in, <coughs> at that time, films seemed very remote. So it was a sort of secret dream, I suppose. You didn't really talk about that in those days. Um, and that's still a problem for our, for the film industry in this country. It's hugely, it's going through a good phase at the moment. There's a lot of production and a lot of jobs, but it still feels very, very remote mm -hmm. to young people in schools in modern Britain. And that's, uh, that's a problem. That's a, that's a problem that, you know, that has to be addressed. And obviously BAFTA and BFI and, and others are doing their best to try and get that out. But that's a really, really important nut that we've got to crack. Obviously, these dreams, your dreams, their dreams, <clears throat> are, you know, inspired by films. So what are the films that sort of inspired that wonder in you initially before you wanted to become a director? Well, I was very lucky in that my father was... He was a somewhat eccentric man. He spent most of his life at sea. And he wasn't very good at the sort of stuff that other dads did, like playing football or Meccano or any of that stuff. But, uh, or even having a conversation. He wasn't very good at that either, actually. <laughs> but, but he did have one, he had many wonderful qualities, but one quality that he had that was really important was he, he never questioned whether you were old enough to sort of um, enjoy important work, and by important work he meant, you know, opera or theatre or films, by which he meant mainly the films of David Lean. And that definitely, definitely had a really huge impact on me as a kid. I mean, I, I must have been about nine when he took me to see... Um, David Warner's Hamlet, Peter Hall's Hamlet, uh, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, that would be when I'd have been about nine. But I can remember it very, very vividly, sat through the whole of Hamlet and it being a sort of shattering experience, you know. And I certainly remember going to see uh, both Lawrence of Arabia uh, and Zhivago. Um, and cinema, when I went to stay at my grandmother's, we'd go to the matinees. That was very important, seeing Tony Hancock and Sound of Music and Snow White and all those films. So the sensual experience of cinema definitely marked me very, very vividly. I don't think I really understood it quite so much 
until much later as I started to make films when I realised that things that I'd experienced as a kid would recur in films that I made, but I wasn't aware of it at the time, you know, as I was making them. But then I'd look back and go, oh, my God, well, that obviously must go back to that experience. And I think that's very important. Childhood experiences of... Powerful childhood experiences of cinema, I think, are mark directors. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you look anecdotally at directors, that tends to be quite a common thing. Mm. Who was, you know, who gave you your first experience of directing? I don't mean, you know, uh, who, who did you meet for the first time that was a director and you thought, wow, this is it, this is the job? Um, well, I can remember as a student coming to a BAFTA event with Robert Redford, and I was then at college, and he invited a lot of student journalists down to watch All the President's Men, which was coming out. This would be about 19, <coughs> I want to say 75 or six, something like that. Um, and he was incredibly inspiring. He was in this room, or whatever this theater was then. Um, and he, he just spoke so fluently about the possibilities of young people making films, the, the things that you could say, the things that you could do. And I'm sure I wasn't alone in leaving. The, well, also, he stayed afterwards and spoke for hours and talked to people. You know, he was just everything you would want a huge movie star and director to be. He was accessible, inspiring, and patient. And that certainly had an impact on me, for sure, for sure. So how did you then first get into the industry? Um, well, I, I applied after university. I applied to Granada. Well, I applied everywhere, in fact. <laughs> I've still got a file at home of all my rejection letters. <laughs> you know, you'd write a letter saying, dear Mr. Froggett, can I have a job as a researcher on local programmes in the Channel Islands? <laughs> You'd get... In fact, it was quite funny, because I had a friend who was also applying. You'd always get letters that came back. Dear Mr Grosgreen, um, Mr Froggett's <laughs> asked me to reply on his behalf, you know, and they just... I mean, the rejections were endless. But in the end, I did get a job at Granada in the sports department. Mm -hmm. Um... In fact, I'd applied about a month before to join World in Action, which, is the pro which was then a programme that they made, which is like a documentary programme, which is really what I had always wanted to work on. <coughs> and got rejected, obviously, immediately. <laughs> so I then applied about a month later. The first letter went, Dear Mr. Whoever You Are at Granada, all my life I've really wanted to work on World in Action, blah, 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 blah. So then a month later I wrote a letter that, Dear Mr. Sports Department, all my life I've really wanted to work in the sports department. So I turned up, it's actually a true story. I turned up for the interview. They invited me up to Manchester for it, because in those days you had to have an interview, a board, um, with sort of august people from Granada there sitting on the other side of the table. And the programme controller held up my two letters and said, which was it? You got found out. I got found out, well and truly, yeah. But they gave me the job, fair play. <laughs> <coughs> and... Um, and so I started at Granada. And, um, and I learned everything, well, such little as I've learned, I actually learned most of it there. And, 
in particular with a man called uh, Paul Doherty, who ran the sports department, who sadly died a few months ago, who was a very, very great man. And um, <coughs> I worked for him for about a year, and I think virtually every day he shouted at me so loudly because I was the sort of antithesis of everything. I came from the South, whereas he came from Manchester, you know, and he just thought I was a ridiculous kind of, you know, student idiot. And um, after I'd been about, about a week, but I'd been there about a week, he said, I've got a really important job for you. So I thought, what's that, Mr. Doherty? Um, you are going to do our action slides. And uh, what it meant was he was sending photographers out to each of the football games in the Northwest. And bear in mind, in Granada land, they had, you know, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Everton, Stockport, Oldham, Bury, Burnley. They also, they also handled Yorkshire, Leeds, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, with hundreds of football teams. And he had photographers going out every night there was a game, or every day there was a game, taking action slides so that when they did the local news and you'd say, George Best has got a groin strain, he can't play on tonight's game, he could put up a shot of George Best in action rather than just a head and shoulders. Mm -hmm. And my job was to file the slides <clears throat> well, of course, because I was a student, the first day I filed the first 30 slides and the second day about 600 came in and I filed about 25. <laughs> and the third day about 3,000 came in and I filed about 50. Until literally my desk had under it bags full of slides and all the desks, were, the desk drawers were filled with these bloody slides. I hadn't <laughs> Anyway, one day I was talking to my friend Andy Harris down the corridor and suddenly I was aware of this huge roaring down the corridor. I saw poor Doherty coming out, shouting and ranting. And I said to Andy, bloody hell, Doc looks a bit angry with somebody. And then I realised it was me. <laughs> you fucker, you fuck, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Again, you got found out. In front of everybody. <laughs> oh, my God. Everybody coming out the corridor going, <laughs> But it did teach me a very important lesson, which is... You have to do the detail. You've got to do the work. Otherwise, you get shouted at. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back at some of your later films, like, mm -hmm. say, Captain Phillips, can you still see the influence of World in Action in those films? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, yeah. What in particular do you think influenced you um, from World in Action? <coughs> storytelling, I think. Mm -hmm. Economy of storytelling, directness of storytelling. Uh, you know, the, um, a certain sort of view of the world. I think Granada was a wonderful place. I was talking to some of you outside. The great... I mean, every generation faces its own issues. Our, our generation faced the problem that access to the industry was very, very narrow and difficult to achieve because there were really only a few channels of television and that was it. There was no film industry to speak of. You have a much more porous industry with, with many more points of entry. But the problem that you face is the immense concentration of forces, particularly in television, which is really where the jobs are to begin with, demanding conform creative conformity. You know, you will make your film like this. You will adhere to this slot because this is what we want, whether it's scripted drama or documentary. And the sort of untrammeled demands of, of sort of creative conformity how you reconcile that with your own personal growth and creative vision. That's a key issue, I think, for your generation, along with 
the related problem, which I'm sure you all grapple with, which is in an industry that's excessively casualized, how do you pay the rent and, again, attain your own creative vision and fulfillment whilst making a living? Those are profound issues. Um, and that's really going to be for you guys to come out and do the best work you can. I've, I've got a strong view that, <clears throat> and I think I said this last year in the BAFTA lecture, we've allowed in this country our crafts and our guilds to be eroded. Now, a lot of that obviously is to do with the, you know, the, the demolition of trade unions since the 1980s. But that's no excuse for us as an industry. Our industry is a, is a very successful industry. We're internationally highly desirable, whether it's film, television, gaming, which is a huge sector. The creative industries broadly are a vital sector of our economy. That's where the jobs of tomorrow are going to come. Now, it's for each and every one of us, and that means you, to play your part in rebuilding our crafts and guilds, because the legislation is irrelevant. We can have, you know, there's no law against creating crafts and guilds and best practice and creating a community abroad filmmaking. Now, BAFTA does a lot of very important work as our flagship organisation in trying to provide leadership, do schemes like this, but, but there's a limit to what can be done top down. You know, if you go to uh, the US, it's completely different. The crafts and the guilds are very, very strong. And they're strong because everyone in those industries out there takes the time to, and takes immense amounts of pride in their own guilds, whether it's costume design, electrician, you know, DOPs, directors, producers. It's, it's hugely... Um, volunteered to. It's a vital part of their identity as, as professionals in a film, in a modern filmmaking community. And I would suggest to you all that as you take your pathway to solve the bigger challenges, which I think are those two that I've, I've just outlined, you know, how you, you achieve your, <clears throat> you know, your creative fulfillment in a, in a very regimented commercial world and also when jobs are highly casualized. As you solve those, one of the ways you'll solve those is by investing your time and your efforts in creating the communities that work for you. Online, part of meeting, because if we can create that self-fulfilling creative community, we're doing a lot to exchange ideas. We're creating forums where creative exchanges can take place. And I'm not saying this just in the ether, you know, um, together with a, a group of directors, particularly Charles Sturridge and, and a bunch of others, we did, uh, you know, over the last 12 years or so, create Directors UK. And that does a very important amount of work now. It does, it, it, it exists fundamentally now. That's the most important thing. But it, it's the same in all sectors of our industry. We have to come together, we have to volunteer, we have to spend time, we have to get together, we have to meet, we have to make sure that those activities are as central to us as the filmmaking in whatever regard we make our films. Because the two come together. Otherwise, 
we're at the mercy of being atomized, which I'm sure you all experience, being you know, in your flats, you know, maybe meeting a few mates in a coffee shop. It's very hard. When I started, I worked at Granada. It was a huge factory, you know, and there were lots of them. There were all the ITV companies and, and you know, the BBC. It's less, you're, you, you're going to get less of that, but equally, you can take power into your own hands, mm. and, and you must, I think. Um, and we'll get on to the more about the future of cinema, where it's going and what we can do to kind of help that. And also be thinking of some questions to ask Paul because we're going to have a Q&A at the end. Um, but just to go back to, you know, post-World in Action, what would you describe as your breakthrough moment into film? Um, well, uh, well, I'd been at Granada quite a, about 10 years, I suppose, and I'd had always wanted to make films. Um, Had you always wanted to make documentaries or films Well, or I was both? sort of doing that. I wanted to make movies. That's really what I had a sort of secret desire to do. But it was very hard to say that without being laughed at. On the rare occasion that I did, obviously everybody fell about laughing. You! <laughs> um, and in the end, the only way you could do it is by writing something and seeing if you could get it away. Channel 4 then had started Film on 4, which was then run by the great David Rose, who did a wonderful job of encouraging a whole, enabling a whole generation of filmmakers, including myself, to have a go, mm. you know? And that's what I did. I got to get up to have a film made. It was okay, you know, it wasn't great, but it had and of course, I didn't work for about three years. <laughs> That's kind of the way it goes. But you have to fight your way through that and, um, and find your way. You so know? you worked on a, a U2 documentary. Um, I did. And, you know, their set included Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Bloody which Sunday, you yeah. then went on to make a film about, what, 15 mm. years after that, I think? Something like that. So um, was the seed planted then? No, I think the seed was planted... Well, first of all, by that being a very memorable moment in my young life. And then <clears throat> later when I started working on World in Action, I went pretty much the second film I made was in Northern Ireland. I went to Northern Ireland. I was very young. Can't be more than about 24, I think. Uh, it, it was the start of the hunger strikes. And I went to the city of Derry for three or four months, um, and made a programme about a young man called Raymond McCartney, who was my age exactly, almost in exactly my age, who was in prison. He was on hunger strike. And he'd shot a couple of people in Derry in pretty brutal circumstances and been given a life sentence. He went on hunger strike. And really, the film had a very powerful effect on me because it became about, well, I started to correspond with him while he was in prison. And the thing from my point of view is here was a man who was exactly my age, who'd grown up through all the same things I had, looking at the same football matches that I had, you know, getting interested in girls at the same time that I had. So all our experiences were the same until 68, 69, when suddenly his life had diverged sharply off and in the matter of a few years, he'd ended up shooting people in pretty brutal cold blood, ending up in prison on the blanket, 
on the dirty protest and then ultimately on the hunger strike. So what accounted for the commonality of our experiences and then the extraordinary divergence of our experiences? And that's really what that was about. And uh, of course, one of the founding grievances of his life was that his cousin had been killed on Bloody Sunday, Jim Ray. And it was an education for me into the realities of that conflict and what it meant and the complexities of it and the moral complexities and the... Um, but it certainly gave me a very intense um, uh, fascination and desire to be involved in telling the story of the troubles in Northern Ireland, which at that time and in my lifetime at that point was a dominant feature of life in this country. And Bloody Sunday was at the heart of that. It was the forbidden story. So that, it was much earlier than the U2 thing. Right. Um, and I remember when I was making that film, we used to talk about it. And that's why when I subsequently made Bloody Sunday, I put that performance of Bloody Sunday by U2 on the end of that film. So it sort of drew a thread through my working life, really. Now this, this film is incredible because it sort of, it demands your attention, it's, it's so realistic and so do you, you know, that must be due in part to you casting ex-soldiers mm -hmm. to play the parts of real soldiers, so what, what was the reasoning behind that? Was it to make it more realistic or was there something else going on? Well you have to go back to the time that it was made. Um, it was made in the late 90s. Um, as at a time when the peace process um, was being pursued with with great commitment by you know both governments, the British government, the Irish government, and all the the parties to the conflict in Northern Ireland, and <clears throat> when Mark Redhead, who produced that film. Uh, and myself sat down to try and work out what we wanted to do. The point was to try and... Here was this issue that that clearly was at the heart of, of the, the grievances, and, and yet wherever you were in the islands of, of Britain and Ireland, wherever you sat, you would have a different view about it. So if you grew up in Dublin, you'd have one view. If you grew up in Aldershot, you'd have another. If you grew up in... <laughs> One side of Derry, you'd have one view, and if you grew up on the water side, you'd have another view. You know, it was, it was a, there was no common history. There was no common narrative. And of course, that's a, a classic thing that happens when conflict breaks out. All, all, all sense of common narrative is lost. So it struck us that the thing that we could do in making the film was try to create a a common narrative that you could believe wherever you were in these islands, that it, you would look at it and say, well, it must have been something a bit like that. And to that end, it became about, in our way, in our small film, creating a, a, a community of people to come together to tell that story from all the islands, and that meant uh, many people, you know, from from the bog side, the Craigan in Derry, and um, people from all parts of the UK, but also crucially, people who'd served in Northern Ireland in in 
in the forces. So that it, 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 the film became an exercise in common storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that was the most interesting thing about it as, a, as an experience for those of us who made that film, because that's what we did. We, we, we talked about it endlessly, and it was a multifaceted conversation involving many, many, many people to try and get to something that felt truthful to us. And, and I think we did a pretty good job of it as a, as a community. I think everybody felt when they saw the film that it, it must have been something a bit like that. And of course, in doing that, that was a... So in a strange way, although it's a very distressing film in some ways, it's actually quite an optimistic film because it, it came at a time when, when history could become history, mm -hmm. you know? Could, the mistakes of the past could be the mistakes of the past, and you know, and thankfully that process with difficulty still continues. And working in a creative industry, you know, things yeah. are bound to go wrong. So how do you come back? From oh boy, mistakes? yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, has your confidence in yourself ever taken a serious dive, and how do you overcome that? God, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, every day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, you can't make films without fucking up. That's, mm -hmm. It's absolutely not possible. And you can't make... You don't learn <clears throat> from success nearly as much as you learn from failure. I mean, I, I made a film once that was an absolute dog called The Theory of... Well, The Theory of Shite, as my children call it. But the <laughs> flight, as, I, as it was called. And uh, it taught me many, many lessons. Um, Your children are so rude, I can't They are so rude, yeah, <laughs> believe me, they are so rude. But, um, uh, you know, and it was a complicated experience and it taught me many, many things. Oh, listen, it was, you know, it was, it was just a film that really didn't work, uh, that I performed poorly on and it was beyond my experience and skill set at the time to do anything about and I learnt such immense things from the misery of it of which the most important lesson of all was because by then I'd made a few films it wasn't like I was a beginner mm. but I had yet to find my true voice my true which is the thing that if you make films that's what it's all about it's not about being a director. It's not about being a producer or being an actor. It's what have you got to say? That's the point. Mm -hmm. What is it that you can say that only you can say? What's the insight that you can bring? What's the song that only you can sing? That's the question. And, and until you have made mistakes and tried a few things, unless you're a genius, you know, that's a different thing. If you're such a genius, that there are some who have such immense kind of gifts that they almost seem to come fully formed. But for most of the rest of it, it's a process. You, 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 of growing in confidence and also learning from mistakes. And I had a problem I now see it, clearly, I don't think I saw it then, although I was aware of frustration. I had a problem which was that I used to write most of the things I made, but they never turned out as I saw them in my mind. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it created this sort of disconnect, you know, so I worked, I always worked, and things came to a head with that film because it was a film that I didn't write, and it was a film that I should never have made because I didn't have anything to say about the subject, and... Um, and out of it, out of the experience of uh, making a film that, that, that didn't work and, on, and where I had progressively less and less power to affect it, um, and all the frustrations that come with that, I developed a sort of a, 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 f a really ferocious... I mean, I nearly gave up at the end of it. That was the truth of it. Wow. I did think about giving up. But in the end, I decided that if I was going to carry on, I would never compromise, not even one iota. It was going to be my way or not. Now, I didn't express it like that. I hope I'm a civilised person. But that was what was going on inside. I found out of the intense frustration and misery of doing something that made me unhappy and where I did badly and the end result wasn't very good mm. and where I felt also that I could have affected it but didn't have the authority and wasn't able to perform or not. Out of the whole melange of it, I, I got that titanium inside that you have to have that is that it's, it's the equivalent in sporting terms of crossing the white line and taking no prisoners and, and you have to have it and you all in this room will have to, in your own ways, develop strategies to, to hone and have honed for you. Your, you've got to get that creative steel, you know? And because it'll, hopefully, you'll find benevolent people along the way and benevolent companies and so forth who will help you, you know, learn and make your mistakes and all that. But in the end, there comes a point where you have to develop that steel for yourself. You have to get it inside. And once you've got that, then the choices get much simpler because it then is this way. This is the way we're going to do it. And of course, you can then find diplomatic ways because you've got to carry people with you. You've got to carry, if you're making you know, whatever, it's documentary or drama, you've got to carry the people you're making the film with and your actors, and you've also, but you've also got to carry the money, your commissioning editors, your, you know, the bosses. And to be a director is to carry people, is to carry yourself in a way that you convey authority and people trust you, you know. But it comes, one of the things that it comes from is having that steel inside and clarity. The clarity to say we do this. That may not be quite right, but it'll get us down the road towards what is right. And uh, fucking up in films is what gives you steel, for sure. For sure. So after you fucked up... But you don't want to do it too often, though. <laughs> then, you, then you don't work, which isn't so nice. <laughs> After that happened, mm -hmm. um, and you know you were starting to make more of a move to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Do you remember like your first Hollywood moment that you think, "Oh God, if my friends at home found out about this, they would absolutely rip the piss out of me." No, but going back to a failure, I remember the very first day. 
turning over, and Ivan, the great Ivan Strasberg, who's a brilliant DOP, was shooting it for me. And we were on a hillside in Wales, and it was the very first shot. And the actors were a long way away on the other side of a hill, and we were shooting. And he was renowned for chattering through takes. And he was looking like this, and we turned over. It's the, literally the very first shot. And he went like this and said, oh, my God. Oh, for fuck's sake. We're totally fucked here. This film's a fucking disaster. That's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true. And it was. <laughs> but uh, on, ho on uh, did I remember what? A Hollywood moment. You're kind of, you know, proper Hollywood moment where you're like, oh, God, what's, what's happened to me? I'm in Hollywood now. Well, listen, Hollywood is no different to anywhere else. It's just a place where films get financed, in the truth of it, you know? I mean, it's... I mean, I was lucky, very, very lucky, that I had paid my dues by the time I made a commercial film. Because that's really what you mean when you, when you say Hollywood. What you mean is commercial cinema. Mm -hmm. Cinema where you have to sell tickets and you're making films for sufficient amounts of money in terms of budget that you've got to sell reasonable numbers of tickets, otherwise you don't work, you know, and that's a pressure. But it's not, it's, the, pre, the, the, the sort of matrix of it is not that much different from anything else. It's not really that different from making a world in action for ITV, which was, was a, a commercial station, and that was a top 10 show, and you had to, to perform, you know. So I wouldn't say it was wildly different. Of course, there were things that you had to learn about working at scale. It's a bit like flying a bigger aeroplane or driving a bigger car. Um, but, but it's not really that different. You know, I remember feeling um, early on in the first day, we got into trouble you know, time-wise, we were running out of time. We were actually the first day of Born Supremacy was in Moscow. And I remember at about four o'clock, as we, we only had so many days and we had to get the work done for whatever reason, money, I would imagine. Suddenly, all sorts of extra cameras were flying out of trucks. And I thought, oh, okay, so there are resources that, you know, there's a sort of, there's an, uh, there are resources that you can deploy to get yourself out of trouble on mm -hmm. a bigger film. But then there are requirements that for more material on a bigger film. So it, it sort of evens itself out. The process is not that different. So the issue is not that. The issue is the same issue that you face and you'll always face wherever you work, which is how do you reconcile the idea in your mind, the image that you have of the piece of work that you want to do with the requirements of those that have financed it, the annoying people who get in the way, you know, like executives, and carry the confidence of the people that you're working with and crucially find a balance between the necessary steel to say we're going to go this way with the necessary humility to be open to your, the people that you're working with, you know, whether it's your producer or your writer or your actors or, or your DOP. You know, so you have, to, you have to somehow keep those things in balance. It's no different, you know. 
Well, things we're talking about Bourne, we can talk about how the logistics of just having Matt Damon mm. in Waterloo Station. So you have him, you know, hanging out at Waterloo. You didn't lock down the station, did you? No, a bit hard to lock down Waterloo. So it? how on earth did you get that filmed with him just walking through without having everyone um, throwing themselves at him? Well, one of the ideas that... One of the problems we had with that film was we were following, you know, the one I'd done before had done very well, obviously. Identity had done very well, Doug's movie. So we were a sort of mature franchise by the time that one came along. Um, we couldn't sort of pretend... I mean, part of the, the DNA of the franchise was that it, it, it felt like a sort of... a bit like an indie film crossed with a franchise. So, but we were now a mature franchise, so how could you keep that indie spirit alive when you clearly were no longer that kind of a film? There were, you know, it's a large budget film and so forth. So the idea, thinking about that spawned or got me to think that what we should do is set the action, the action sequences, and I wanted to create very long pieces. That was the sort of idea I wanted, rather than sort of five-finger piano exercise, I wanted to create long movements of action, sort of 15 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that got me to thinking that, that what we needed to do was to set them in places where you couldn't operate like a big movie. And obviously, if, a big, if you're a big movie, you, you tend to create, you know... Um, a sort of sanitized space that's locked down and you know you can put your trucks in and get all the kit out and operate you know but it creates a sort of hermetically sealed uh, filmmaking so I thought that if we could go into places like the Medina in Tangier and, and, and Waterloo Station where we couldn't lock down we would be forced to operate on the land, much more like a sort of small indie film, which is actually what had to happen because we'd, in, in that sequence, we were only allowed a very small number of people, I think 20 or 25 or whatever it was, actually on the station at any one time. And, uh, and all the trucks and all that were parked about three miles away down the river. And, and it, it did do that and it, it gave it that flavour and it meant that um, we'd turn up and actually what we used to do was set the cameras up on one side of the station and then uh, Matt and I and, and um, uh, um, the operator would run to the other side of the station quietly and then we'd shoot a piece because what happened was then everybody would congregate in terms of the mobile phone clickers round where we'd set up our base but we'd actually be shooting the other side of the station and that's actually honestly how we did it. That's truly how we did it. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd have, you know, we'd have been filmed all um, the way through. What do you think that you brought to Bourne, having come from a non-fiction background? Tell me about that move from fact to fiction. Well, listen, the guy who really, who, who, by the way, whose idea the franchise was, was the great Doug Lyman, um, who directed Bourne Identity. And Doug is a, a very brilliant... Uh, man, and he, it was his idea to take this book. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read the original um, Born Identity book. It, 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 and that's the one with the idea of the guy who loses his memory and all that. And it's actually quite a sort of... It, it's kind of a, a classic sort of thriller that, that, that isn't particularly 
um, it doesn't set out to be oppositional to power in any way. It was Doug's brilliant idea to say that if you took that character and span him the other way, you could turn him into an outlaw, uh, which is really what he is, you know, the guy on the run who doesn't trust anybody and all the rest of it. Um, so that was his genius. I suppose what we did with ours was to develop that feeling and put him in a much more recognisable contemporary world. And I think that's what we did with Supremacy and Ultimatum. We made it much more, you know, Bourne was alive in that sort of bush mm. ascendancy world, you know, of, of 2003 to seven. People talk, you know, I've heard people talk about um, action movies in the sort of post-born, pre-born way. And I, you know, I know it's, hard to blow your own trumpet, but do you sort of see your influence in action movies now? You mean with other people's films? Yes. Um, yeah, I do a bit, yeah, mm -hmm. sometimes, yeah. Is that quite flattering? Um, or are you like, stop stealing my style, guys? <laughs> um, I remember, um, I remember after, I can't, it must have been after Born Supremacy or something, being told, I think by my, I was then at ICM with Greg Hunt, he said, I said, oh, what did, we were on the phone. I said, he said, oh, I can't, I'm, I'm busy this afternoon. I'm seeing a bunch of uh, people from America who are coming over. I said, oh, what's that about? He said, they've come to find the new Paul Gringo. So I said, hang on a second. <laughs> I'm still very much available. <laughs> um, no. Uh, listen, of course it's flattering, but, you know, you just get on and do your thing and mm -hmm. you can't sort of attend to that too much, really. Mm -hmm. You know, you do what... You do the, the next film in front of you as best you can and then think about what the next one beyond that is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you know, the new talent in our audience this evening is kind of beginning their own creative careers and mm -hmm. always looking to learn from the best. And I'm really interested for you to mm -hmm. talk us through like the real nuts and bolts of, of a scene from Captain Phillips. So I remember when this film came out, everyone was kind of going crazy over the fact that you cast um, these sort of, you know, not actors, and then you kept them separately from the American crew. So, Talk us through that decision. Um, well, I suppose, I mean, looking at that now, what, what's interesting to me is what was interesting about the scene, which is there's a huge ship, I mean, enormous, simply enormous, filled with, with you know, all the riches of the world and all the high-tech gizmos that you can possibly imagine and, you know, a whole bunch of people. And then you've got four skinny, half-starved guys who, you know, shin up the side of the thing, and everybody is utterly terrified. And, and it's the... And, of course, rightly so, because they are, you know, young gangsters, essentially. Um, but there's a disconnect there, and it goes to modernity. And... And, you know, there are complicated layers in that, you know. Or, or, because that was what was interesting about that, that event was that it was four young men who held up a ship and then held up huge amounts of the US Navy. And there was this, you know... Um, macabre 
embrace that was only going to end in violence, but born of a profound mismatch um, of resources and wills. And that was interesting. And it, and it, of course, that's only one part of it, but later the, the, the four young men become as much prisoners as, as the crew had been at the beginning. So it enabled you to explore, I hope, in an interesting way, the nature of modernity and the nature of, you know, the way that globalisation is throwing up these conflicts between the wealthy part of the world that trades down these ceaseless shipping lanes and, you know, the impoverished kids who watch it go by and what they do. And that's what that film was about. What were you sort of looking for most in terms of an audience reaction? Um, well, a as with any film, it's got to reward you f for coming to, to the cinema. You know, it's got to be a film that you want to watch but hopefully it, you recognise within it some, something of what's going on out there. You know, I didn't want to demonise anybody, not them nor the guys who eventually shot them. I wanted to feel that that spiralling encounter felt real, and I think it did feel pretty real. It did feel yeah. real, yeah. Um, you often talk about a post-9-11 world and a post-Iraq world. So mm -hmm. what impact um, have these events had on cinema? What impact have they had on you? Well, I think they've had a massive impact on, on cinema, for sure. I mean, across the board, you know. One of the things that was quite interesting about doing the two Bourne films was that really to try and get that sense of the paranoia and mistrust that was injected into the sort of body politic um, post-2001 and post-2003. I think we've, we mainlined with mistrust and it's still there and it's raging, you know, that fever is raging ever, ever hotter. You've only got to look at, at the politics of Europe and the politics of America to see that. You know, our response to an asymmetrical world is what's driving that, and our responses to that asymmetry, I think. And you see it everywhere reflected, you know, in the hugest big superhero movies down to the most insightful and beautiful art house pieces. You know, we're trying, everyone's trying to make sense of... I mean, that was the extraordinary thing about thinking about a film like Bloody Sunday, which was made before that. Bloody Sunday was made after 30 years of, of conflict. And within a context and an atmosphere of the sense that that conflict was passing, because it had been a, a generational conflict. I remember uh, going to see Raymond McCartney, who came out of prison, and he was then officer commanding the prisoners in the maze, the provisional IRA prisoners. And we, uh, he did his 20 whatever years, 24 years I think he served, or three years. Um, 
and we spent the day and went for a long walk, and it did feel like a war was ending. He was certainly an you know, active player in the peace process from the provisional side. Um, little did we know that this hugely larger conflict was emerging, seemingly, of which we're only in the very early stages, you know. So the short answer is I think it's marked commercial cinema and I think it's marked all our cinemas with a, with a, uh, a mistrust and a darkness and a bleakness. Um, and I think that one of the things that we're going to look to your generation for is hope in that situation. You know, where is the, where is the hope? Where is the humour? Where is the life? Where is the possibility? You know, that's going to be very, very important to find, I think, for cinema to find them and for British cinema to find, for sure. You know? One of the things I love about uh, and the great master Ken Loach always repay study because for all his uh, unswerving sense of, of, a, of a fallen world, his films are shot through with the redemptive power of humour. Right from the very earliest ones, Kez, Kathy Come Home, you know, there's... And that's a lesson, I suppose, there somewhere. When in doubt, always turn to the old masters, I say. Well, this is a, a good chance then for you guys to ask your questions. Hi there. Um, you've had a long-standing relationship with your editor, Christopher Roos, Rouse. 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 Yep. Um, if you had to hire an editor again, what would you look for? Would you look for the CV? Would you look for the personality? The... Well, a relationship with your editor is one of the most important relationships. I remember uh, that little sequence there of the fight in Waterloo Station. I remember when I first saw that and I said, phone I said, Chris, what do you, do you like that thing where Bourne at the end comes up and pistol whips the guy? I'm not sure about that. Isn't that a bit fight? I said, fuck it, hey, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it, hey. Um, what would you look for in an editor? The relationships that you need to make any piece of work, and it's true of an editor, it's true of a producer, it's true of a writer, it's true, are relationships of extreme trust where you can both make mistakes and where trust is the key component. Um, and the more you work, the more films you make, the more you realise that that is the hardest thing to enjoy but the most essential thing. And it's particularly hard, I think, when you're younger because, you know, you have to deal with this terrible phenomenon in, in our country today in the television industry of the overmighty executive, you know. Um, you know, it, it, television executives today really do believe... Listen, I'm not saying that there aren't some excellent television executives. There are. Of course there are, and they do a very good job. But they truly have now started to believe over the last 15 or 20 years that they actually are the creative force that make all these programmes. And it's the most extraordinary thing to watch from the outside because the, they don't. <laughs> most of the time, 
they're stopping you do what needing to be done, you know. And that's going to be an issue for you, how you fight your way through that. The answer is, revive your crafts and guilds, but work in relationships of trust with your editor, your producer, your writer. You know, that is what's important. Um, and, you know, all directors, in the end, when you send your rushes to the cutting room, you're sending all your worst ideas on film made real. <laughs> that idea you had at 10 o'clock in the morning for that wonderful crane shot that you spent till 3 o'clock in the afternoon doing, you never got it right and it was shit, then you abandoned it, had to do the whole day's work in three hours, fucked it up, and ended up doing the last three scenes in one shot. <laughs> Put it in the bathroom. <laughs> and if you're lucky, they go, you look at it about six months and say, that's actually not bad. <laughs> so there you go. That's what you look for in an editor. That's encouraging. Uh, I think we had a question over here. Hi. Uh, what do you think of the audition process in film? Do you have much input on it? And do you think there's maybe a better way to do it? Or are you happy with the results? The audition process? Yeah. For actors? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean... I think one of the problems, I would say, and now I'm talking anecdotally, but I think that I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a director of very long standing. He was saying one of the problems now in, in television over here is that directors are hired and all the casting's already been done. Well, that's not good practice. Now it's now creeping forward. It's like you'll have all the, the key grades in the crew will be done, you know, um, that strikes at the relationship between the director and his or her actors. And it goes back to the issue of trust. You need to be working in places where, as a director, you feel respected by your executives and your producer and you can develop relationships of trust so that together you can be clear what the piece is that you're making, what the ground rules of it are. Um, you know, there's no good if you're making a piece that's, you know, a, a, you know, a gritty drama about setting a sink estate in Leeds, going and casting, doing an open casting at Eton, or vice versa for that matter. You know, I mean, you've got to, you have to be clear what you're making and and cast appropriately, but in the end, if you're gonna work with that actor, whatever the, you know, whoever that actor is, it's got to be a relationship between you and your director. You're an actor, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you tell me, what are the problems from your point of view? Um, I think it's, the main one is the like you said, I think it's it's when when you're when you get the idea that they they're not sure what they're casting, mm. and you don't know if you where you fit in, and, it, and it, I think it's the trust issue there. You you don't feel comfortable in the room. Um, this my. I mean, it's uncomfortable to be fair, isn't it? But yeah, I think it's yeah, and you don't feel uncomfortable in the room. Comfortable in the room, and it's it's that breeds all the other. Problems that you know everything else comes out, and I think it has to be a trust thing. And I think it, you have to get the sense that they know what they want. Yeah. So yeah. 
And do you often feel that's not the case? Quite a lot of the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes you don't know what you want, by the way, and you're looking for some suggestions. You know, one of the ways a casting director can really help is to offer you some different ideas, you know? Mm. You know what about if we do it this way or that way, you know? Um, and that's often very helpful. Um, yeah. It's a... Listen, the... the the mechanics of a long casting process are difficult where you're meeting a lot of actors in one day, you know, and for a part, and, you know, it's going to be short meetings. That's always difficult, you know. It's just uncomfortable human situation, isn't it? But generally, if people, you know, have some good humour and some patience, it can be made more pleasurable, that's for sure. Um, have we got any more questions here? Um, like, during the time, like, from when you were 15 to when you really found your breakthrough, mm -hmm. what were the things, kind of, you were doing in between that time? Like, did you, like, ever work in a coffee shop? Like, do you know what I mean? Just things, like, normal things? Or was it really all industry stuff? Um, no, I mean, I was lucky. I came out of university. I went to work at Granada. Um, I worked there for about 10 years, 9 or 10 years. Then I left, I made a film, film four. Then I had a period of, well, I was writing, I wrote a couple of screenplays for the BBC. That was a pretty dispiriting process, I must be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. um, I could tell some stories about that, but I won't bother. Um, Get you in the bar afterwards. My, my, but I remember it as a pretty dark time because I, you know, I had a fire inside, but I didn't know how to do it. And I, I didn't want to do episodic television. Um, and I don't quite know why, actually. I, I suppose I must have dimly perceived that it wasn't right for me. I did, I did in the end, get offered a job on Bergerac, which I used to love, actually, Bergerac, the old bloke in the Channel Islands. And I went in at 10 o'clock in the morning. They were terribly nice. Um, it was the BBC. I've never had very happy experience with the BBC. I love the BBC, but it's a, not really for me. Um, but anyway, uh, and I went out for a sandwich at lunchtime, about 12.30, and I walked home and I didn't come back. Um, <laughs> and I phoned the bloke and said, I'm sorry, it's not for me. But um, I probably joined the ranks of people who were... Funny enough, I was reading the paper the other day that Hans Zimmer, the great Hans Zimmer, uh, apparently his first score that he ever wrote was for the BBC. And he went £25 over budget. And some oik said to him, you'll never work for the BBC. <laughs> oh, my God. I bet, I bet he's really, really regretting that. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I didn't... I didn't work in coffee shops, but, but I certainly had long periods of time, well, really until I was about 45, when I would quake with terror putting my card in the, to get 50 quid out. Yeah, because I was broke and I had children and, um, you know, I, I definitely experienced all of that over a long, long period of time. In the end, I went back to doing documentaries is what I did, because I thought, well, okay, I've made one film, that's more than most people get to make, 
And actually, I started to get comfortable with that. I went back and I did a couple of years of that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I got a phone call about a piece of work out of the blue. And then <laughs> since then, I never stopped. It's weird. But uh, I certainly would have served coffee if, if, you know, I mean, you do anything to pay the rent. True. You know, that's what you have to do. Hi. Um, what's your view on the UK independent film industry now? And um, have you ever wanted to make a film that you know is not going to make any money back, but you really want to make? Um, well, um, yeah, I've certainly made films that they haven't made their money back. Theory of shite being one. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think about three people saw it. I'm desperate to see it now, oh, though. Oh, my God, it's a <laughs> shocker. Um, uh, um, no, my thoughts on our industry are we're in... Listen, we're, we're in tremendously... We have tremendous opportunities. Um, uh, and not just in the film industry. I mean, you know, the creative industries broadly. You know, film, television, uh, gaming, design. That, that whole nexus, that's a hugely important part of the modern British economy. It's job creating, it's wealth creating, and it's growing fast with every expectation that it will continue to grow. So it, it, there's never been a better time to be in our industry, you know, for young people. Um, in terms of the film industry, tremendous numbers of films coming into the UK, big films providing jobs and training for, for all our crafts and guild, you know, in, in, in whatever areas. And also, um, lots of opportunities to film to be, to be made here in the UK, you know, BFI, it's, it's, it's never been better, I think, but there are always problems in, I think, for young directors. I mean, Directors UK did a piece of research that showed we're very good at getting uh, young directors a chance to make one film, but it's very hard for directors to sustain their careers. In other words, there's a very high drop-off. Um, from people who make one film and then never make another. As I, I mean, that was my problem. It's very, very hard to sustain it. And, and, but, the pro but, but the problem is that you get so much better by doing a number of films and making mistakes because you learn such a lot from that. So one of our key issues here is to, to find ways of encouraging... Uh, and creating conditions for sustaining new talent, young, you know, talented young people to have longer lasting careers, to stick in the industry, to find pathways beyond their first engagement in it. I think that's a profound issue. I think we have to, um, you know, Breakthrough Brits is a great programme. It's really, really good, but it's only ever going to be one tiny part of what needs to be a very broad engagement with skills, uh, revival in this country and that, you know, creating crafts and guilds is, is very much a part of that, but only a part. We're, we have a huge amount of production in this country, film, television, you know, local and international. We're creating large, large numbers of jobs, 
But we've got to train people. We've got to make sure that we can sustain that growth and the projected growth that's going to come over the next five to ten years. I mean, if you go to Leavesden Studios, it's a huge purpose-built. Warner Brothers have built this huge studio. Films are coming in. I'm just talking about only that because I happen, that's where we've been shooting our film. But we have to be thinking about where we want to be as an industry in five years' time and how are we going to create systematic opportunities for young people to train. And what they do, the industry is doing that, but we need to do more to ensure that your generation can come through and, and find meaningful careers. It's harder, as I said at the beginning, when the industry is so casualised for that to happen. In terms of funding, it's always going to be hard um, but not impossible for films to be made in this country. I, I don't believe, and now I'm just talking, it, this is now sort of existential matter of belief. <laughs> I, I doubt that there is a huge uh, um, reservoir of unmade films out there that never got any funding. That would be my hunch. I think if the if it's the right film and the right idea and it's at the right price and it's got a strong idea with the right talent and it's pursued with passion and vigour and clarity, most of the time it will get made. Um, but it's the coherence of our industry that's the problem. It's, it's, it's offering your generation pathways that are meaningful over time. That's the real challenge here, I would say. And reviving our skills, because reviving our skills will create an industry that will, will prosper and also provide you with the opportunities that you need. Does that make sense? Great question. Thank you. Uh, you've got one just here. Hi there. Uh, yeah, I have a question. You made uh, United 93, which is about September 11th, and then you made Green Zone, which is about going in and going in without particularly a plan with what to do afterwards. And then you, do you see, with the current affairs, do you see almost, do you, do you feel an urge to almost make a third film with, about the aftermath and about the vacuum that's been left? Or do you, do you think there's an appetite for that even? Um, well, I don't know is the honest truth, you know. Um, uh, Listen, every, every filmmaker is different and you have different things that, you know, interest you. I, I, you asked me earlier, did World in Action stay with me? Yes, it did in this sense, that I, when I was young and, and formative, I was interested in the world out there and I wanted to see it and I wanted to travel it. I don't actually like travelling at all now, but I'm <laughs> older. <laughs> but when I was young, I had a thirst to see how the world worked and to see it at first hand. And I was lucky enough to be given the opportunities to do that. And, but, but the interest in the world in action, how the world works, <coughs> who has the power, who doesn't have the power, how there's a tension between those two, a struggle going on, and always is, always will be, always was... That's what, what I'm interested in. In the end, I'm always drawn back to different versions of that. And you try and 
as best you can in your own way. Um, find ways of making films that can reflect that. But of course, it's you know I'm working now for the moment in commercial cinema, so you have to find ways of doing that that uh, reward people for making the choice to come and see your film. But I've hope I've certainly tried to do it in different ways. Some much more directly commercial, like a Bourne movie, but I hope a bit more interesting than a big dumb movie. But also films like United Nations 3, which are actually a very small film. We made that for, you know, very small amounts of money, but it, you know, it was a very um, pure response to 9-11, or as, as I could make it anyway. So you try to, you try to pick the theme, the song that only you can sing, and then you sing it, you know? Like, uh, like when you, I always relate when a, a singer says, or, you know, I, I can sing that's in my register. Do you know what I mean? Well, everyone has a register, unless you're Mozart, you know? <laughs> um, my register's quite narrow, is the truth of it. As, I, as I've got older, I've come to realise that. But, but it's endlessly revived because the world is always in action. It's always potently happening out there, and if you can find ways to address that and, and get that into your films, they have life, they have vitality. We've got time for one more question. Um, for Captain Phillips, which was quite a commercial film, you chose to use... Barry Ackroyd, as your cinematographer, mm -hmm. who has quite a um, long background in documentary filmmaking. And I just wondered what your thinking was behind that choice and your relationship al along the way, because he's quite an intuitive um, DOP, I feel, and how, through the storyboarding process, you kind of collaborated, or whether you were just like, you can take the reins on this one. <laughs> well, Barry and I go way back. We come from the same place, actually. Barry shot on World in Action too, although he was never there all the time, but he was part of that whole post-free cinema, British documentary social realist movement that swept through in the 60s and 70s, you know, and was very, very associated with um, uh, Granada and also very associated with the great Kenneth Trodd, who's sitting up there, who gave me one of my first films. Um, that, that sense of the, you know, a pitiless observation of the world as it's happening and reflecting it. And Barry was part of that. We, we had that in common and we started working together on United 93. And we've, he's done every movie I've made since then. So it was natural. I mean, there was no special choice to make he used Barry in that film, it was, um, he was always going to do it. But you're right, he has a, a poet's eye, for sure, um, and a great sense of rhythm, and, uh, and he's a stunning operator. He is a gooner, which is a bit of a problem. <laughs> but um, today, he was shooting a very small insert of a book. And I hate shooting inserts because they're fiddly things. So I asked a man called Mark Fitzgerald, who works for Chris Rouse in the editing room, to come and shoot it. Because what happens is if I shoot the insert and I put it in the cutting room, they all send it back to me. So oh, it's not right. You're going to have to shoot it like this. 
So anyway, it was a rather comical scene of Mark Fitzgerald shooting an insert of a book with Barry. And uh, at one point, Barry said, I've been shooting this fucking movie for six months. I know Paul won't like it like this. And Mark went, I don't give a fuck. Just shoot <laughs> 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 it. Please try to have your yeah. back. There you go. So, so that's Barry. <laughs> so you finished shooting Born today, did yeah, you? Yeah, four o'clock this afternoon. Congratulations. Thank you for making it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Relieved? What? Are you relieved? Well, no, I'll tell you on July the 29th <laughs> when it comes out. <laughs> uh, Paul Greengrass, thank you so thank much you for joining much. us tonight. It's been inspiring and wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.